Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York. Good evening, everyone. And this is Indivisible, the national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles and listen to our fellow Americans even as we talk. And the main thing we do here on the Tuesday edition of Indivisible each week is to see how the first 100 days of Trump are challenging American norms. Now, today is day 33. And the norms just continue to fall. Since we last spoke last Tuesday, we saw norms of decorum fall at a presidential news conference. Quiet, quiet, quiet. See, he lied about he was going to get up and ask a very straight, simple question. So, you know, it's welcome to the world of the media. That to a young Orthodox Jewish Trump supporter trying to ask about anti-Semitism. Since we last spoke, we saw the new normal of what a president is willing to say about the press. He said in a tweet that it's the enemy of the people. That even got Fox News to question Trump's new normal. Here's Chris Wallace with White House Chief of Staff Ryan Priebus on Fox News Sunday. You don't Give get to tell us break. what to do any more than, than Barack Obama did. Barack, Barack Obama whined about Fox News all the time, but I've got to say, he never said that we were an enemy of the people. Let me tell you something. He said a lot of things about Fox News, Chris. I think you ought to go check the tape. He blamed you for a lot of things, and I'm surprised as someone from Fox that you'd forget all the shots that he took. No, he took Fox the shots, and, and we didn't like him. And frankly, we don't like this either, because uh, you know he. But he never went as far as President Trump has, and that's what's concerning, because it seems like he crosses a line when he talks about that we're an enemy of the people. That is concerning. I think you should- And it wasn't just Chris Wallace. Here's Fox News Channel anchor Shepard Smith, as you probably never heard him after the long scolding presidential news conference last week. It's absolutely crazy. He keeps repeating ridiculous throwaway lines that are not true at all and sort of avoiding this issue of Russia as as if we're some kind of fools for asking the question. Really? Your opposition was hacked and the Russians were responsible for it, and your people were on the phone with Russia on the same day it was happening, and we're fools for asking the questions. Shepard Smith on Fox News Channel. There are more first 100-day norms falling that we'll talk about as we go. Let's welcome our guests for this hour. And because this is President's Week, we have two guests steeped in presidential history, as well as the present, Douglas Brinkley, the Rice University history professor, CNN presidential historian, and author of many books about presidents, including his latest, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America, and NPR commentator Cokie Roberts, author of several books about women in American history, including her latest, Capital Dames. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Cokie. Hi, good to be with you, Brian. Hi, Doug. And listeners, if you voted for Donald Trump, what American norms are you trying to defend? If you didn't vote for Trump, what norms do you see him trying to violate? 1-844-745-TALK. That's 
800-848-8255. If you did vote for Trump, any buyer's remorse? Is this more off the rails than you expected it to be? Or is he the breath of fresh air you hoped he would be? And if the norm is making America great again, what American norms is he on his way to recovering? one 745 talk And since the show is about getting out of our bubbles and being Americans together, what's a norm that you think you have in common with people on the other political side from you right now, however you define that? Anyone able to go there? one eight four four seven four five talk eight four four seven four five talk for Douglas Brinkley and Cokie Roberts. So Doug, I was thinking if Cokie does women's history, you, by focusing on the presidents, are in a way doing men's history, <laughs> affirmed again in November. Have you ever thought of it that way? I have. Um, I often try to um, write about women in my books, uh, even though I'm dealing with writing about presidents. For example, uh, when you, I'm writing right now on John F. Kennedy, but I'm calling the book Silent Spring Revolution, making sure that Rachel Carson has this uh, preeminent role in the book of um, um, launching the modern environmental movement. But it is always, I have a, I'm a father with two daughters, and it always seems like we're about maybe to have the first woman president, and we never do. So presidential studies is by and large uh, about men. And, you know, in all seriousness, one of the sets of norms that I wonder if is in play in our culture wars are the norms of masculinity. Bush had a reputation to his detractors as a cowboy. Obama was a different kind of new man. I'm not sure what the right term is exactly. Trump is an old-fashioned guy's guy, joking about grabbing women. If it was a joke, as he claims on the Access Hollywood tape, and always talking about being strong, Mike Pence always calls the Trump policies broad-shouldered. And here's a mashup of some of those references that the Washington Post put together. We have got to begin to lean into this with strong, broad-shouldered American leadership. The American people are going to see a strong contrast uh, between uh, the broad-shouldered leadership of Donald Trump. They're going to hear broad-shouldered leadership. He and I stand shoulder to shoulder. Both men were very broad-shouldered leaders. And the kind of broad-shouldered leadership that Donald Trump will bring is going to make our country more safe. The broad-shouldered Trump-Pence administration. And here's one more for good measure. Trump from at a rally in Baton Rouge in December after he was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. It used to be called the Man of the Year. Now it's called the Person of the Year. That's good. They're politically correct. Who would rather have it be the Person of the Year? I got a lot of women here. What about the women? Let's do it again. Who would rather have it be the person of the year? A couple of people. Who would rather have it be the man of the year? Maybe why that, uh, that could be why the magazine business isn't so great, right? I don't... Yeah, he doesn't like the gender being taken out of what it used to be called man of the year. By the way, Koki, you changed from man of the year to person of the year in 1999. I looked it up, and the first person of the year... Um, was Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. That's how long they've been around now. But, but are, are the norms... Uh, but uh, did ahead. they have woman of the year when a woman... I mean, like Margaret Thatcher, I think at one point, was, was on Times Covered. I would have to look back and see. Uh, <laughs> I guess if it was Margaret Thatcher 
as person of the year, it wouldn't have made sense to call her man of the year, right? right? Uh, but are the norms of masculinity in play in the politics of this administration, do you think, Koki? Oh, sure. And the norms of masculinity are always in play in our politics. Um, we generally elect the taller president. Uh, we we are always having people appeal to this sense of strength. Uh, now, uh, Donald Trump, even long before it was clear that he was going to be the nominee, was running against Hillary Clinton, saying that she was didn't have stamina. This was a way of saying that she was uh, female and weak. And uh, these are, you know, counterbalanced by male and strong. And, uh, and I think that there's no question but that that uh, plays into the American electorate's psyche about uh, a president. I wonder, Doug, if that's one big reason the first protest against Trump was organized as a women's march. Well, no question, because Donald Trump is a 21st century misogynist. Um, Barack Obama was not that. Uh, George W. Bush was not that. They may have done um, moments of macho rhetoric, but their heart and soul wasn't misogynistic. A lot of this goes back. I mean, we could look at how many generals we um, elected into the presidency. You know, old Hickory of Andrew Jackson, and um, you know he used to duel people, and William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor. Um, Theodore Roosevelt used to call it the strenuous life and would constantly preach about manly virtues. Um, and, you know, in, in John F. Kennedy with vigor and the idea that, uh, yes, vigor, <laughs> ba- backing the Mercury astronauts and uh, hanging out with the, you know, Rat Pack to kind of show a masculinity um, about him. It used to be for somebody running to president, they want to show that they were great military hero, you know, the San Juan Hill or PT-109 and the like. 21st century, we thought we had evolved around that. um, But alas, Donald Trump in many ways is a backlash figure, and he's taking us um, into some dark caverns of American life. And one tangent before we take some of our callers, Koki, it's sort of a tangent. I see you wondered in print this week if Melania Trump can fulfill the usual role of a first lady in a certain advisory sense. I think Melania Trump is really kind of stepping up. Uh, I think that she has decided, I obviously don't know, but she's uh, shown up uh, with the uh, premier of uh, the prime minister of Japan and uh, and then again with the Rubios came to the White House. She has uh, decided to play a role. And uh, when the president said at that press conference that you played earlier that she cared about women's difficulties uh, and that uh, Ivanka would be helping her. I'm not sure that sat so well, and uh, I think she's uh, coming forward. But um, but it is true that uh, she is a lot younger than he is, and uh, that puts her in a somewhat difficult position because the the first lady often is the only person who can really, in the end, say to the president, come on. This is this is not working. It's not working for you, and it's it's not a good idea. Now she has to be very careful about how often she says that, because she first of all she wants to stay married presumably, mm. but secondly she um, you know she, you wear out your welcome if you if you're the scold and and Eleanor Roosevelt's a good example of that, but um, she I think uh, is in a less strong position than some uh, first ladies who have been uh, equal part. 
partners of their husbands for many decades. With Cokie Roberts and Douglas Brinkley on Indivisible, Stu in Trenton. You're on Indivisible. Thanks for calling, Stu. Hi. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I look at it this way. I am a, I am a Trump voter. I, I do think that he has some problem with the way he perceives certain groups and the way he, and what he says. But I will say it's very hard... You know, when you go, when people call him a racist, a misogynist, and and use other terms for him, when Donald Trump makes a statement that people interpret that way, he never actually says anything explicit about that group. He always ties it to policy. It's always, well, you know, we have to keep, we have to, we have, we have, we have rapists and criminals coming in. We have to keep them out, and he makes it an issue of immigration. When he um, when he says comments about women, he always says you can. He always, I've heard a lot of Trump supporters defending him that, well, you know. He, he starts up with men also. He goes after men also. I think he hasn't, I think if you would look at his rhetoric... Megyn Kelly bleeding really from her wherever? What? Megyn Kelly bleeding from her wherever? Exactly, that is true. I definitely see it that way, but you can understand how people will say that, yes, he said that about Megyn Kelly, but he said a lot of, you know, really horrible insults about a lot of men also. He's, a, he's an, you know, equal opportunity insulter. No, and, Stu. Thank and, you. Chuck, and, go ahead, Koki. Well, I wondered how Stu felt about that as a Trump what? voter. As a Trump voter, do you does that does that attract you, or does that is that it, something? It bothers me. It definitely bothers me. But I think on matters of you know foreign policy, immigration, the economy, I just I, I couldn't vote for Hillary. I, I it was not a, it was a, I voted for him very reluctantly. But I think you, you it's very hard to just create a narrative of, well, he's a racist and a misogynist and, ha- and expect everyone to buy into it. Because, you know, he, do- he, ne- he never says these things explicitly. He's never gone after African-Americans. I haven't heard him gone out- go after African-Americans. He's never gone after, you know, L- the LGBT community. And all you hear is, well, he's gone after this group and that group and that mm-hmm. group. And, you know, you don't really see it. Yeah. And people will say that he's gone after African-Americans in different ways, like being willfully ignorant against what we know he knew about David Duke um, endorsing him and things like that. But, Stu, we get your points. Thank you very much. Let's go on to Lynn in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Hi, Lynn. You're on Indivisible. Hi. Thanks for letting me talk. Um, about the norms, I'm going to tell you about a changing norm that I'm feeling. I just returned from um, a town hall meeting in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We are trying to get our representative, Pat Toomey, to meet with us, his constituents, to answer our questions. Tonight it was all about the Affordable Care Act. There were people with conditions, cancer. Um, There was a woman, of course, whose son died of an overdose. And, you know, the questions were very real. They're very human. And why isn't our representative coming to, to listen or to answer our questions? Lynn, thank we were civil. There was nobody, you know, with a bullhorn or anything like that. It was just like, and what's please your, meet with us. What's your answer to that question? Why wasn't he? From, why didn't he? I think he's scared. <laughs> I think he's scared because he only won. His name is Pat Toomey. He only won by like a 2% margin. Um, there's been a lot of campaigns, you know, emails, phone calls. He's not answering phone calls. He's not answering emails. His phone is always busy. You know, once in a while, people have gotten to an aide, 
but he's he's making himself very scarce. To doesn't, his- doesn't want to deal with it. Hey, Douglas Brinkley, as a historian, um, how much of a norm is an in-person town hall meeting? You know, maybe it depends on the technology of the day. In 2017, when we can have tweet-ups, they don't feel uh, as compelled. But how do you see it historically? Well, I think the if we can call the birth of the Tea Party movement a town hall movement, meaning people going and objecting to the Affordable Care Act, and it started a, a gigantic historic movement with the Tea Party, we may be seeing now the continuation of that uh, over the Affordable Care Act, except the left now is attacking the uh, Orion Care or the GOP plan or lack of plan. I think it's going to heat up by late spring, early summer. Um, and the idea is that, um, you know, what what repeal and replace is a slogan, but uh, what are you replacing it with? And that's all being sorted out yeah. right now. And actually, as a norm, curious to see, well, I'm just going to say uh, next week, um, President Trump is doing the State of the Union address, and I'll be curious to see what he says about uh, the Affordable Care Act or what his plan is um, for the country. But, but, you know, what's interesting to me, Brian, what's really not a norm is for a member of Congress to avoid his or her constituents. And uh, quite the contrary. I mean, I always joke that they're kind of like the bad uncle you can't get rid of, you know, that they're at every bar mitzvah, first communion, graduation, firehouse opening, whatever, because they want to be with their voters. And uh, we're, we're seeing this phenomenon of, of, of right now, this week, with members of Congress out of session, uh, being afraid to, to or, or choosing not to have those kinds of confrontations. That is definitely not the norm. Dustin in Auburn, Illinois. We've got about a minute before a break, and it's going to be yours, Dustin. Hi, thanks for calling Indivisible. Hi, thanks for having me. So as far as uh, the social norms with President Trump, what I really wanted to say is I think that President Trump is more so a show of the voters wanting to get away from political norms that we have, not necessarily social norms. I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of what Trump campaigned on is truly how voters feel. We feel left behind by a changing economy. We feel left behind by a more global outreach. And while the claim has been that it's for our betterment, we feel left out and we feel like America is not the priority of our political leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the pushback that he's getting on a lot of his policies are simply that just by his cabinet picks, we are seeing Trump follow through on a a campaign promise to get rid of the political machine and these career politicians. Dustin, I have to leave it there, but we're going to pick this up when we come back after the break, because I think he's raised an important normative topic, which is nationalism versus internationalism. So stay with us as Indivisible continues. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. 
And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York on Indivisible, the national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles and listen to our fellow Americans as well as talk. And the main thing we do here on Tuesday nights uh, in this edition of Indivisible each week is to see how the first 100 days of Trump are challenging American norms. Today, day 33, and the norms just continue to fall. Very happy to have with me presidential historian Douglas Brinkley and Cokie Roberts, who's also got, what, three history books? More than three history books? Seven altogether. (laughs) Most recent Capital Dames. And then the children's book, Ladies of Liberty, now in the stores. (laughs) For President's Week. And let's um, chew over a little bit, uh, Dustin, from Auburn, Illinois, who was on just uh, just before the break, because some of this has to do with nationalism versus internationalism as competing norms. I think he was getting at well, he, but I think he was also getting at this this question of feeling left out that the modern economy has left people behind, and I I do totally get what he is saying about feeling that the norms of politics as they have been played. Uh, were not working for him. And it was not just Trump voters who felt this way. It was it was Sanders voters who felt that way too. And, um, and I think that's a very strong feeling in the American electorate at the moment uh, on both the left and the right. And I think that there is um, a, a tremendous uh, willingness to give Trump a chance on the part of the people who've supported him because they think that it's better than what was going on. Now, how long that will last, we'll see. But um, but it would be foolish uh, to for us who are observing it to think that this is not working. Tony in Los Angeles, you're on Indivisible. Tony, thanks so much for calling. Yes, sir. Uh- um, I think that I'm a Trump voter and uh, was a big supporter of Donald Trump and uh, liked what I saw from the get-go uh, in August, was it, of 15, when he stood up at the podium with all 16 other candidates and he said, uh, you know, we have idiots running Washington. You know, he was for change. Uh, he's not the normal. Uh, he's not a politician. So, therefore, he's not going to do things in a, I guess, a politician's way. I mean, he's not a lifer in politics. He's not... Strom mm-hmm. Thurmond. He's not Bob Dole. He's Donald <laughs> right. Trump, the businessman who came across over the line into the crossover. And, into, and, uh, and, and, po- and Tony, now, that, lead, now yeah. that he's been in for 33 days, are there norms that he's succeeding in shattering to your eye? Uh, well, he's going to enforce laws like on immigration, obviously, uh, with the you know with this uh, suspension, which I, I can't stand the media calling it a travel ban. It's a suspension of ninety or one hundred days, which I think was foolish of the courts to strike down because it would have been two weeks in minus fourteen ninety days. There will only be seventy six days left. All they're going to do is prolong the agony for the travelers of those seven nations. But uh, you know, I, I think that uh, and you used the strong, broad shouldered terms in the early going and the top of the hour. Uh, you know, we need a good swift kick in the rear of this country. People need to wake up uh, and realize, uh, you know, uh, he's not going to do things that are on the normal pattern of 
procedures. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a politician either, but the political spectrum, uh, it's obviously throwing the press off. Look what he did uh, last week with the press conference, an hour and 20 minutes of just answering questions. And he wasn't answering questions from reporters way in the back. He was poking right in the front row, and they were asking him the tough questions, uh, something we couldn't get out of the left, obviously, Hillary Clinton. Did, how, how, did, how, did it, how did that strike you, that news conference? Because a lot of uh, media analysts called it unhinged and things like that. It didn't. I'm just it was just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. I think the media certainly wanted to twist it. Uh, a perfect example of this was in one of his first days in office. If you remember, when the FHA uh, the FHA rate was raised. Uh, six-tenths of one percent, but the media twisted the story. Little does everyone know that uh, Julian Castro, the outgoing uh, HUD secretary of the HUD, he's the one who lowered it six-tenths of one percent, but what does the media do? They twist it. Oh, Donald Trump raises a HUD uh, rate six-tenths of one percent. They try to portray him as the bad guy, like he's costing the little guy getting the loan another $500 a year, where it was lowered on January 11th by the outgoing administration. Tony, Why dry up the reserves? See, the, the media is the one that's behind all of this. If people would just let them do their jobs and quit trying to sell news, they're just trying to sell newspapers. A perfect example of this was the police shooting in Ferguson. Uh, you never heard the other side of the story. The media just twisted it so much that you never heard the other side of the story that the boy that was shot, no one knew that his father was incarcerated until he was 14 years old. That boy had no father growing up. Now, I'm not trying to curse the boy, or, but he had no, he had no proper upbringing. So, and, I mean, and, and I don't just, want to get too, too much into to Ferguson and away from Donald Trump. Um, I appreciate your point, and I'm not sure that his upbringing was something that the officer who was acquitted, who was never indicted, and by the federal government as well as by the local grand jury, um, to be fair to him, uh, I don't know that the kid's upbringing comes into it. But, Tony, we really appreciate your points. On the news conference, we know about Trump calling the media the enemy of the people. Here he defends himself from being seen as an authoritarian for that by citing history. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln, and many of our greatest presidents fought with the media and called them out, oftentimes, on their lives. So, Douglas Brinkley, as a student of history, a teacher of history, how much did Trump get that one right? Um, well, of course, all presidents complain about the press and the media, as Cokie well knows, they all have problems with it. The issue here is this idea of Donald Trump's of of demonizing people. Great leadership is based on trying to pull the country together. Thomas Jefferson tried to pull the country together um, when he was first elected. Um, you know, FDR, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Ronald Reagan was a polarizing figure, a conservative, but he pulled America together. Donald Trump operates in dividing the country. And for him to be more than a one-term president or to really be somebody of greatness, he's got to find a way to talk to people. I mean, to blanket criticize the media and in, in have people now writing hate messages, Twittering, any reporter who says anything critical will uh, critical get hundreds of streams of just invective aimed at them. Uh, I don't see how people find that to be inspired leadership, turning Americans against each it's other. Actually more so I hope, yeah. 
I Go think ahead, it's Koki. actually more serious than that. Uh, look, all former presidents had particular uh, news outlets that they hated. Uh, you know, Jack Kennedy can- famously canceled the New York Herald Tribune, and and Thomas Jefferson's problem was with a reporter that he had originally uh, tr- hired to to do in John Adams. So, you know, they're individual uh, members of the press or news organizations that past presidents have had trouble with. This is a, a difference in kind, and uh, the difference is that it is basically saying that everyone in the media is a liar and that what they are printing is universally untrue, even when the facts are uh, ob- just you know as plain as the nose on your face. And so uh, what happens that as a result of that is a, a very determined effort to do in the, the one of the two institutions that actually can be a check on the presidency, which is the press, the other being the courts. And the president has also uh, waged a determined uh, campaign against the judiciary. Now, the third institution that should be a check on the president, of course, is the Congress, uh, but that's not uh, a mood that they are in at the moment. So uh, the two the two institutions that really can be a check on this or any president are the press and the and the courts, and he is in a very determined fashion going after both of them. Though the and Trump I'm supporters, just... uh, Doug, say liberals and the media are losing their minds when they talk about fascism and authoritarianism because of what he said, like so-called judge and media enemy, the people that so far the only norms being shattered there are the norms of what a president feels like saying. The courts and the major news organizations are standing up to him quite nicely, they would say. How do you see it? Um, I see it. It reminds me of Richard Nixon. I, you know, I edited or co-edited the Nixon tapes, and Nixon wanted to destroy the press. He wanted to just destroy. If I could only rip Walter Cronkite down, CBS will crumble. And it was heinous what Nixon was doing. And he decided a war with the press, and he unleashed his vice president Spiro Agnew on them. It never helped our country when Nixon did that. It just became ugly and grim. A much better way for Donald Trump to deal with the press would be to be like Ronald Reagan, float over it, be the Macy's holiday parade and float over all the noise (laughs) fest or um, do interviews um, with who he wants to do it with. Pick media if he wants to only do Fox and and, um, Newsmax interviews, so be it. But to demonize and try to turn people almost violently on the national press is to me insidious and it's very, very dangerous um, terrain, and I hope he can make some adjustments to that behavior. I don't yeah. buy that let Trump be Trump. Uh, I think that we need to have a higher standard of leadership than turning Americans against each other. It's indivisible. Brian Lehrer with Cokie Roberts and presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. Listeners, what American norms are you trying to defend if you voted for Donald Trump? If you didn't, or even if you did, and you're alarmed by what he's been doing, what norms do you see him trying to violate? one 745 talk one 745 8255 We also have the hashtag. You can get in on the conversation using the hashtag IndivisibleRadio, hashtag IndivisibleRadio. Uh, someone tweets, there may be a new norm of more people getting involved in political conversations. 
And I, voting in four years, writes that person at hashtag Indivisible Radio. I, I actually think that's quite true. Um, one of the things that we've seen, getting back to your earlier theme, Brian, uh, is women are getting much more involved in and uh, workshops that train women to be candidates. Many of them are nonpartisan or bipartisan. Some are with each political party. They are reporting that their uh, sign-ups are greater than ever, ever before. Uh, and these are not just people sort of idly signing up. They're paying money. And um, they are. there's a real movement there. And I think that's wonderful. Uh, whichever, whichever party it is or whatever a movement is, to have people involved in politics and interested in what's going on in the country and willing to participate in their citizenship, I think is a very... Um, very healthy thing. And one of those people getting involved in a political conversation is Alejandra in, maybe appropriately, Media, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Hi, Alejandra. Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. What do you want to say? So um, I guess the main thing I wanted to talk about is just um, the immigration you know, norm, uh, just because that affects me personally. Um, I am a permanent residence in the United States, and, you know, that allows me the possibility to work and to earn money and pay my taxes and do everything else that I can do. But the one thing that I can't do is vote. So this election, I was unable to vote, and had I had the chance, I would have not voted for Donald Trump. I would have voted for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, with the whole immigration um ban that happened, a lot of people were affected with that. by that, even people that were not from Muslim countries. And before him being elected, I did not feel like my immigration status was at any risk or, you know, any sort of fear. And now, um, you know, I'm planning a wedding outside of the country, and now I feel like I can't do that. And so at a personal level, that's affected me a lot, but also um, I feel like I have the obligation to participate in, you know, small get-togethers and see what I can do to cause change because um, it's unacceptable that after living in the U.S. for the majority of my adult life as a young woman, I feel unsafe and, um, you know, a lot of the misconceptions that have been created, um, unfortunately, have been created by his administration. A lot of people misunderstand um, immigration and people that have migrated to this country, and that is something I definitely have an issue with. Alejandra, the Trump people would say there's a norm that fell away in this country, which is if you come here— you should come here legally. A country has a right to control its borders. And if you come here legally or illegally, um, you have to follow the laws. So if you've got the double you know, mark against you, if you're here illegally and you've committed a crime, then they should deport you. And that's what Trump keeps saying over and over again as the focus of the policy uh, change at the moment. Does that not strike you as reasonable as a norm, or do you not believe it, or where does the fear come from? So the fear comes from, you know, the instability of, you know, the new bills that are being signed. So I guess my personal fear is, like I mentioned, I am a permanent resident, so I am here legally. Um, my fear comes from the fact that one day, you know, 
you're okay if you have a green card. The next day, you're not. Alejandra, I think you should probably also explain to our listeners why you aren't a citizen, because the that that turns out to be something that is very difficult for a green card holder in many cases. So why aren't you a citizen? So it takes a certain amount of time for anybody to get to that point. In my case, I was able to obtain a green card through marriage, and so it takes three years after I've received my green card to apply for citizenship, not even receive it, apply it. Then I have to pay a certain amount of money in order to apply, and then um, I will receive a notice in the mail saying that, you know, I have to go take the test and whatever else. So um, for people that are not here through marriage, it would take um, five years of them after receiving their green card to apply, and then they can hear back on whether they um, can become citizens mm, or not. That's yeah. a lesson yeah, exactly. for our other listeners. And in fact, Brian, today the, the, new, um, the new standards that have come out today do seem to be going beyond just uh, people who have committed crimes. It does, it does appear to be more of a roundup than that. Does this, Doug, follow a historic push and pull in this country when it comes to the welcome mat for immigrants or immigrant identity norms? How would you put today's announcement, if you've looked at today's announcement, or this whole immigration thing that's going on with Trump in historical perspective? Well, although we're a country of immigrants, there's constantly anti-immigrant movements that swell I mean, if you just give you one example, in the 19th century, the Know Nothing Party was almost exclusively uh, anti-immigrant. Uh, Millard um, Fillmore, who was a ex-president, was a big part of that movement. Uh, we have Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, Donald Trump on the campaign trail praised Operation Wetback, which most scholars see as Dwight Eisenhower's darkest moment in his eight fine years as president. Um, so this is a way to turn people uh, against Mexicans, um, to replay on fears of terrorism along the border. And it's hard to not see how people don't see there to be a racist element to um, Trump's rhetoric. Uh, it's offensive to people of Mexican-American heritage. And that doesn't mean you don't have tight borders. That, But the, la- the, the, the vibe coming out of the Trump um, rhetoric is one of um, like uh, you know Father Coglin or something on the radio. It's there's a hatred involved with the the speech. We will continue in a minute with Douglas Brinkley and Koki Roberts. I'm Brian Lehrer on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York on Indivisible, the national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. 
the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles and listen to our fellow Americans as well as talk. And the main thing we do here on the Tuesday edition of Indivisible each week is to see how the first 100 days of Trump are challenging American norms. Today, day 33, and the norms just continue to fall. Happy to have with, uh, happy to have with me on this Tuesday of President's Week, Douglas Brinkley, the Rice University history professor, CNN presidential historian, and author of many books about presidents, including his latest, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America, and NPR commentator Cokie Roberts, also ABC News political commentator, author of a number of books about women in American history, including her latest. Did I plug the wrong book before? It's all right. We can do it with both of them. <laughs> Which Cap- are? Capital Dames is my latest grown-up book, but there's currently a children's book, Lady, Ladies of Liberty, in the stores. All right. And another thing that broke with past norms this week was needing the defense secretary to clean up the president's mess. Remember Trump said in January in a speech at CIA headquarters, that the United States should take Iraq's oil. I wasn't a fan of Iraq. I didn't want to go into Iraq. But I will tell you, when we were in, we got out wrong. And I always said, in addition to that, keep the oil. Now, I said it for economic reasons. But if you think about it, Mike, if we kept the oil, you probably wouldn't have ISIS because that's where they made their money in the first place. So we should have kept the oil. But okay. (laughs) Maybe you'll have another chance. Well, here is Mattis in Iraq over the weekend reassuring them that, no, we are not planning any plunder. All of us in America have generally paid for our gas and oil all along, and I'm sure that we will continue to do so in the future. Uh, We're not in Iraq to seize anybody's oil. So, Douglas Brinkley, I'm guessing that was the first time a defense secretary had to contradict his president on something like that? Well, that quickly out of the gate, it's um, – but look, we all – General Mattis, or Secretary of Defense Mattis, a first-rate person. Uh, Rex Tillerson, we're hoping will do a great job at state. Uh, McMaster now at National Security. They can't live on some of the crazy things that Donald Trump said on the campaign trail in 2016. I mean, that was just uh, Trump being bombastic about we're going to grab their oil and – you know, so it's um, we're, anybody who really believed the United States was going to do that are going to be disillusioned with the Trump administration. I think in the end, um, you'll get people in, in defense, CIA, state, trying to do the right things, try to get a coherent American foreign policy. We don't quite have one yet. Donald Trump's operating in a willy-nilly fashion. He contradicts himself constantly, but I do believe there will be a kind of Trump doctrine that comes um, forward in the coming weeks that will be comprehensive about how the United States sees and will deal with the world at large. But, you know, when you talk about norms, uh, Brian, this is is where it gets dicey uh, because uh, other countries need need to know what the American norm is and be able to rely on it. You know, we are, we are the leader of the world for a reason, and, uh, and the world needs that leadership uh, for any, any sense of stability and peace. And, uh, and so it is, it is very scary to leaders around the world to not know where the United States is and what the United States is up to. 
And then when you get into the specifics of something like we're going to take your oil, of course, that is exactly what many Muslims in the Middle East were saying in the first place, you know, that George Bush wasn't really about democracy. He was about taking oil. And he that's not true. George Bush really did believe that he could spread democracy. Uh, and uh, now this is just playing into that, that entire worldview of the United States of America. Jeff in Atlanta, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Jeff. Hi, guys. So, um, you know, the topic of norms and the press, you know, tonight uh, I've heard that uh, because Donald Trump exhibits machismo or he's macho, that that means he's misogynist. He observed uh, Hillary's uh, stamina. She was making uh, two to five speeches a week and filmed uh, collapsing, unable to move her legs accidentally by someone's cell phone on, on the 11th of uh, September. But that his, his observation of that, he's a very good observer of people. He had a TV show that was all about his observation of people. That really means, no, that he's, he uh, hates women. He's misogynist. You know, we've been told tonight on the panel that he, uh, since David Duke uh, endorsed him, that he uh, that means that Donald Trump is a racist, even though he disavowed David Duke 30 times. And, you know, how can any, as I think Ronald Reagan said, you know, you can't control who endorses you. Um, since a reporter was asked to sit down after he had made his point, who actually was a big Trump supporter and knows very well uh, that he's not anti-Semitic, since this man was, was Jewish, this means that, you know, he was... Um, uh, a rude uh, or or is anti-Semitic or something. And um, another person's name that came up tonight was Jeff Bezos. Um, now I haven't seen on television or heard this on the radio, but I have I have read that Jeff Bezos, who uh, we all know is a um, media vendor, has been given and is the sole owner of the Washington Post, has been given six hundred million dollars from the CIA to host cloud services for the CIA. I mean, I can't imagine how cloud services cost $600 million, but how did the American people have any say in uh, our money going through the CIA to Jeff Bezos and to the Washington Post? And then we hear these stories from the Washington Post and um, uh, Carlos Slim's uh, outfit there, the New York Times we hear every day, that Donald Trump uh, is in cahoots with the Russians. Now, you read down to the 17th paragraph, it says there's actually no evidence of this. So you, you've got 53 stories on the table. <laughs> Let me um, follow up on one that you mentioned that I referred to, so I'll come back to that. And on the David Duke thing, it's not that David Duke supported Trump, therefore Trump is a racist. But I think it was well documented that Trump, who had denounced David Duke over the years when he wasn't running for president, when he was running for president, he suddenly couldn't remember who David Duke was when he was asked to denounce him when he was developing this alt-right following. And so a question gets raised as to whether he was using, winking at somebody else's racism for political gain. I think that's a legitimate question to at least raise. Um, I think that I think that because we've had uh, this series of incidents in the United States uh, against Muslims, uh, against Jewish community centers and uh, desecration of an of a historic Jewish cemetery in St. Louis over the weekend, 
uh, and we've had racist incidents, um, that regardless of the president's own views about any of these things, that it is incumbent on him to come out and say, this has to stop. Now, he said that about anti-Semitism today. today. But he needs to do that. And I'm, I was actually surprised that he hasn't done that. That, that I mean, it, it doesn't hurt him to do that, uh, to come out and say, this is not a country that I want to see uh, incidents of hate going on. And I'm not that person. I'm not a hater. And I want other people to stop acting like haters. It seems to me that that would be a good thing for him to say. And it would put to rest any of this kind of criticism. Jan in Tullahoma, Tennessee, wants to continue that point, I think. Hi, Jan, you're on Indivisible. Yes, actually, um, that was exactly why I called. We were talking about norms, and one of the cherished norms that I grew up with was that we are a melting pot, that we are a nation who basically built ourselves. Um, And... I heard this comment of his today about uh, disparaging any kind of attacks on Jewish places of worship, and I am Jewish, and I was, I really wanted to remind him that Semites include our Muslim brothers as well as ourselves, and where was the condemnation from him about torching mosques and doing nasty, ugly things to our Muslim brothers. I I really am having a hard time with how divisive he has been in this very, very short time in office. And I say that living in Tennessee, which, you know, we have our own problems. But we were really doing pretty well, and now I'm seeing a lot more feeling of division and looking over one shoulder and wondering, you know, who are you with and that sort of thing. I I really would like to see us come together in a way that he is not promoting. And there was a a caller also uh, earlier who said he's never said anything about black people, which is true. He hasn't overtly said anything, but he has implied that most black people come from blighted urban areas and he needs to save them. And this is also not true. And it's another divisive kind of thing. And and that's a great way to, you know, line up your people against our people kind of thing. And it's not good. It's not good for the country. It's not good for the country that I have come to love and cherish and want to see keep growing and becoming who it was growing and becoming. Jan, thank you very much. Um... Koki, conservatives say it's usually the left that tries to change American norms in the name of progress, as they see it, the norm that a country's borders are supposed to be enforceable, the norm of assimilation of immigrants, not multiculturalism, marriage between a man and a woman, of gender roles, free speech rather than safe spaces, we're a Judeo-Christian country, I could go on. Many of these are debatable, but Trump voters could give you a list of norms a mile long that they feel they're defending with Make America Great Again. Do you think we're in a historic battle over American norms? 
Well, I I think that's a very well taken point uh, that it is true that it's usually people um, who are against the status quo who are trying to make a change and and conservative by its by its definition means more in tune with the status quo. It's funny, Doug. Make America Great Again is by definition a, a nostalgic movement, right. and nostalgia is usually not the thing that breaks norms, but in this case it is. Well, make a, when is that Make America Great Again? Back when there were Jim Crow laws? Back when um, Mexican-Americans had no rights? Back when Native Americans were rounded up? Uh, Andrew Jackson's portrait has now been moved into the Oval Office. Uh, Jackson of the Trail of Tears, who's been recently taken off the front of the $20 bill in place of Harriet Tubman. There's a there's a fight going on in this country, and that's what your show's about about what is America, and there's and, and Donald Trump is in, is very keen on dog whistles, and recognizes that um, you can get there are many people in America who um, feel white Americans who feel the only thing they've got going for them is that they're somehow higher on a on the totem pole than uh, than African Americans or Mexican Americans. That's a kind of bigotry, and I'm suggesting on your show that Donald Trump is president. We've got to all pull behind him, but he needs to do more to heal the country in these coming weeks. He has not passed that test in his first month in the White House. He's continued to run the 2016 divisive campaign, and I hope he can kind of find a new gear to be in and uh, and start unifying us. Herbert in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Herbert. Hey, how's it going? I was listening to your radio show on the way in, and I must have called a hundred times so I could <laughs> make a comment. Well, you Good got you, in. Glad you did it. <laughs> Enough calls. It bumps other people off hold. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, let me, let me be brief because I know that's a long list of folks that probably want to make a comment as well. I think that 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 the norms are out the window that and and I hate the comments that are made that these the the divisive comments that he made on the campaign trail that's the campaign uh-huh. i I don't buy that he told you in in doing when he was uh, campaigning that he would be a div, a divisive president that he wasn't interested in unifying the country. He was following a narrative in the country where people are upset, where people are disenfranchised, and he used any language and any means necessary to move that forward because it got votes. He, he, he has no interest in unifying the country. He, his interest is, is in promoting his own agenda, no matter what it is. If, if his agenda is, is to... to to quell the, the the naysayers or the people that hold him in check to his power, which is the the news media, humiliate him and get him to shut up. The more Belarus and more you know, the the louder he is, the more his base love it. He's feeding them the hate that they've asked him for all through his campaign. What do you think he and really, Herbert? What do you say, what, do you, what do you think he really is after besides his own aggrandizement? You think he has values and norms? I, I really don't. I really think I don't think uh, Donald Trump is a very deep thinker. I, I, from what I've seen, he seems to be a fairly shallow man who's only interested in promoting himself. Uh, case in point, only I can fix it. 
I can, I, I, I. He never, he never mm-hmm. mentioned his staff. He never mentioned the American people that, that could help him promote his right. ideas or the Congress, House, or Senate. Herbert, I'm going to leave it there because we're running out of time. Thank you so much. You know, I'm glad elect- you got in. Election night, he did make that speech about unifying the country and bringing people together. At 3 o'clock in the at morning. At 3 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and it actually made a difference. The markets, which had been tanking up until that moment, started to pick up and, and have, have sense. But And that's what I expected. I think I was here, Brian, and said that to you. That's mm-hmm. what I expected for yes. the inauguration. That was a good and start, that, right. and then he reverted to type. Right, and and that was a real surprise to me. And clearly, this is where he wants to be. And when Doug says, you know, he needs to, to do a reset, Doug, do you think that's going to happen? I don't know. I'm hoping it does. But, you know, we just earlier in the show talked about Koki with Iraq and talk about taking their oil, and now Donald Trump's backed off of that. We can tell you a hundred things he said in 2016 that he's backing away from now. Um, today's comment at the um, Smithsonian Museum of African American History, uh, where he denounced hate and anti-Semitism, was, was good, but it needed to be stronger. It didn't seem to be coming from his heart. So we're looking for his passion to come in and talk about no hate crimes. We're all one country. Maybe next week, the big set, the speech in front of Congress, joint session, he will start a different tone, maybe more of a unity tone. We can always hope. Otherwise, we're just in despair that it's going to be a, an ugly um, hate fest here in the next four years. Doug, take a last 30 seconds. The former Republican national chair, Michael Steele, said he's watching to see whether the presidency changes Donald Trump more or Donald Trump changes the presidency. Which is it so far? And actually, 15 seconds. Um, can't tell right now, but I don't think Donald Trump's changing the presidency. I think we'll revert back to a different figure that has, if he doesn't become a healing agent, people will reject him. You need to be optimistic and positive to be a, a successful president, not to turn people against each other or preach fear. Douglas Brinkley and Cokie Roberts, thank you so much for spending this whole hour with us and our callers. Thank you very, very much. Great to be with you, Brian. Keep using that hashtag, Indivisible Radio, and keep the conversation going. I will be back next Tuesday night to do kind of a pregame show before that State of the Union type address. And tomorrow, our Wednesday night Indivisible host, Charlie Sykes, invites former chess champion Gary Kasparov to discuss his knowledge of Russia and Putin and how it informs his views on Donald Trump. And if we're lucky, maybe he'll tell us how to checkmate with just a knight and a bishop. Sykes with Kasparov at this time tomorrow on Indivisible. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.